Welcome back to the A-Suite Podcast. We are UCLA Anderson MBA students bringing you the best insights on industry deep dives, the MBA experience in general, and so much more. Now this week, we are so excited to bring you a bonus episode about, you guessed it, GameStop. Are you invested? Do you have diamond hands? As business students, we're following the market and trying to make smart investing choices, so we're absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity today to sit down with Professor Subra, an expert in behavioral finance, in order to get his take on this entire GameStop squeeze, an event that he believes that we'll still be talking about 100 years from now. Let's cut right to the chase and let's talk stock. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, I have with me Professor Avnidhar Subramaniam, or Professor Subra as they call him, at UCLA Anderson. He's the professor of finance and he's expert in stock market activity and behavioral finance, who is known for his path-breaking research in the use of psychological principles to explain stock price movements and has published numerous articles in leading peer-reviewed finance and economics journals. So, Professor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I hope all of you are doing well. That's more important. Um, I'm just sheltered at my home waiting to get vaccinated, but all of you have a life to look forward to um, after graduation. And I'm hoping that everything will be back to normal by the time you graduate. So let's hope so. But things are looking much better now than they were three to six months ago. So in the scheme of things, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Professor, uh, what are you currently teaching at Anderson in, in this semester or in the upcoming semesters? Yeah, actually the school uh, uses me in a very specific way. Um, I simply teach behavioral finance. I teach it to full-timers, I teach it to FEMBAs, and I teach it to the master in financial engineering students. So that's basically what I do. This course is slightly different from the financial engineers, but basically I teach that. And I teach some PhD students as well, but that's it. Awesome. And uh, are you, is that is one subject I think Professor Wessels uh, you know, recommended us if we were interested in behavioral finance? So which semester can we expect that uh, to happen? Yeah, so that class is offered in the spring. All right, so all of you make a note of that. We have behavioral finance coming up in the spring semester. So uh, what are some of the topics of research that you're currently working on? So it's very timely because uh, one of my topics of interest is essentially looking at whether people actually understand options, markets, and derivatives when they trade them. And what we're finding in our research is that uh, what we learn in 408 and 430 in full-time uh, program is very different from what people actually know about options in the real world. So we are finding that there's a lot of naivety about uh, options markets. And uh, that's a paper that I'm pretty excited about because it helps us understand how these derivatives markets should be um, understood and regulated by policymakers. And we we are finding that people need a lot more education about derivatives than is currently happening um, in the real world. Um, I also work on various biases that can explain stock price movements. Uh, one of the topics of interest these days is overconfidence, like how do overconfident investors um, cause excessive volatility, um, cause all kinds of uh, bubbles in stock markets and so on and so forth. And there are many other things I do, but these are the ones that are most relevant to um, what I teach. So Professor, what really happened in the last few weeks? Uh, what what happened with GameStop and what happened with Robinhood? Can you just give us a brief idea about that? All right. So um, as you know, one of the things that's happened in the society in general is that it's uh, very easy to uh, connect uh, with 
people who have similar opinions to you, right? So in the olden days, like say 20 years ago, um, it was a little bit hard. I mean, you could meet um, for lunches and dinners and coffee and it's, it was hard to coordinate opinions, right? Or, or, or connect with people with similar opinions. So now it's become extremely simple because uh, you can just go to a forum with like-minded people and then basically agree on things, right? Um, and another thing is that um, if uh, somebody appeals to a crowd that in some sense, you have a message that's very appealing to a crowd, then the crowd can sort of go with your flow because they all are sort of uh, have a certain mental state. And when they see someone with a certain opinion that uh, they think is appealing, then you can get a lot of people to follow you if you make your point. So it's easy for opinions to um, uh, be aggregated, uh, especially if people are similar minded. So in this case, the particular case, as you know, what happened was that Basically, um, GameStop is a, is a stock with a cult-like following. And uh, GameStop is a stock where people feel warmth in the sense that many of millennials connect the video games very well. And so the, 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 the GameStop deserves a second shot. They shouldn't go under simply because they have brick and mortar stores because they have a good product and they don't deserve to do so. So that sentiment already prevailed in a lot of millennial traders at all. The problem was that that got compounded with a general um, uh, populist sentiment that uh, the elites control the world as mistakenly or otherwise. And so the elites need to be taught a lesson. Um, and there's various reasons for that. That's, we're not going to get into that. There's a finance problem. So, so the opinion already prevailed that uh, the elites control the world. The elites don't care about the little people, so to speak. And so they need to be taught a lesson. So they said, okay, well, GameStop has a lot of short interest. So what we can do is that we can basically, uh, if all of us buy and refuse to sell, then the short short sellers in um, GameStop will be forced to close out their short positions because as the stock rises more and more, they get margin calls. Like you can't hold your short position because you they say shorted at 40 and the stock's now at 200. The broker will say, no matter how large the hedge fund, look, you can't hold a short position. It's running at such a big loss. You can't do it. So that creates some difficulty for the hedge fund. So they knew that. And so all they did was that they coordinated on the message board to simply buy and not sell. So it's important to note that the entire crisis happened because they bought and refused to sell, right? So if you keep buying and you refuse to sell, the stock can go nowhere but go up. And, and that creates difficulty for the short sellers because they want the stock to go down, but it keeps going up. And that puts their position in the GameStop, the hedge funds that is, in jeopardy, right? They have to close it. And this creates difficulty for the so it's a classic um, sort of almost like a revenge game that they play. And um, when, when you take revenge, you can have, act as a mob and take revenge on some politician you don't like. But in this particular case, they all took revenge, so to speak, on this hedge fund, these hedge funds that were holding short positions. So it was a short squeeze, but for the first time in history, in my view, the short squeeze was done by retail traders against institutions, as opposed to institutions doing it to other institutions. And that, in my view, is a piece of financial history because it has never happened that way before. It was just unprecedented. It got a lot of us in finance just very excited because it was a momentous event, one for the history books. So 100 years from now, we'll talk about GameStop just as much as we're talking about it now. So all of you are participating in a piece of history, financial history and history in general. What I'm hearing is that you're referring to these new finance influencers who can come from anywhere. And because they have the social media platforms, it's very easy to influence a crowd 
to their opinions. Right, exactly. Um, right. So, uh, however, I would warn you that to some extent, the motives of people who try to act as influencers aren't in every case uh, noble, right? Because um, as you know, um, the b biggest issue is bump and dump. So if somebody has an opinion, um, if the opinion is really uh, important and valuable, then um, you would first trade on it yourself, right? Like, so you sort of, or you would sell it to some hedge funds or something to that effect. If you come to a message board and uh, sell an, uh, and, and project an opinion, then it suggests to me that you might not have, because coming to a message board is free, right? Nobody's paying you for that advice, right? So you're just coming. So I would suggest to you that from an incentive standpoint, if somebody who comes to a message board is to post advice, um, I would suggest that the motives would need to be questioned in many cases because uh, one classic reason to do that, give advice for free is to pump it up. Like, so you sort of give a, buy the stock, give advice and close out. Um, I think that people who come to message boards to give advice um, are somewhat suspect, right? Because if you truly think you have something valuable, you would um, essentially trade on it yourself without giving it away. Or you would give it away to institutions who pay you well for it, right? That's what we learn in business, that uh, time is valuable, talent is valuable. So why are you giving it away on a message board? So your motives are suspect. Maybe you want to manipulate the market, right? So you have to view these things, which are those of skepticism is what I'm saying. Motley Fool's website. So if the idea is to draft traffic to Motley Fool's website, which has an advertisement model. So then you say like, I'm going to give you advice. We're going to see these advertisements which are customized for you. That's a better model because at least there they're saying like, you know, okay, our website runs on advertising, but nobody would come to our website if our advice is useless. That model makes sense. But simply going to a message board and giving away advice um, doesn't make any sense. If the idea is to induce you to click on their website, that makes sense. So you always have to worry about the incentives of the sender of the advice, uh, whether the incentives are actually aligned uh, with the advice being useful. We are taking the strategy class where through the case of economist, we got to learn about this new term called mass intelligence where everybody has access to information and they are trying to use it in some form or the other. At the same time, there are people who can motivate you in the wrong direction. Um, so how can we educate ourselves about the stock markets? Uh, and what is the role played by FinTech in this regard? Okay, so I think that the first of all, I think that um, mass intelligence is valuable in getting information about products, right? Like, so suppose you want to sort of see if you should um, buy something, right? Like, you know, or upgrade to a latest model of some electronic device or something. That's very useful to go into the message boards and see what people are talking about to look at the Amazon star rating and comments and what do people say. For products, um, I think that's good because um, when you get, want to get a feel for whether you should buy a product um, or a service, that makes a lot of sense. But whether you should buy a stock, it becomes a problem because the problem is that uh, with stocks, um, it's not a sort of a, a sort of a, it's just a financial asset, right? So if I truly um, want to, uh, as I said, give advice on whether somebody should buy a stock or not, I would say that I won't give it away for free if I truly believe that I have something substantive to say. I would essentially either sell it to someone or get employed as an analyst or uh, market it to a hedge fund and something to that effect. So I would suggest to you that uh, acting on stock advice based on forums is problematic. I think that the advice is somewhat tainted by the by manipulation. So I would be pretty careful about uh, using mass intelligence to buy stocks.
If you want to use mass intelligence to get information about the products of a company and then decide whether to buy the stock or not, that makes sense. But direct recommendations of stocks and message boards are somewhat suspect. It's not obviously uh, uh, the correct way to act in my opinion, right? Because that's that's a manipulation issue, right? Like you can, you know, you, you, you can pump and dump a stock, but it's harder to pump and dump an iPhone. That you can't do. So it's harder to sell an iPhone in the secondary market, but anyone can sell the stock back in the open market. So the manipulation incentives are much higher for stocks. So you have to be careful. Is all I'm saying. There's a distinction between using mass intelligence to get information about the products of company and using mass intelligence to um, act on stock market advice. That's really helpful, Professor. And while I'm still on my way to becoming, you know, slightly educated about uh, investing in stocks through the finance uh, module, uh, when this happened, I couldn't help but run to my, the CAs, the chartered accountants and the bankers of my family and ask them, uh, you know, what has happened. And the one thing, uh, you know, coming from India, they reacted to was that, don't you have circuit breakers? And that was a new term to me. Uh, and then I got to learn about this, that there is a ceiling or a cap that is put in the Indian stock markets where the price cannot shoot up beyond the point. So can you enlighten us about this? What is it about and how it, how it plays in the US markets? Here's the problem. The, the, the problem is that this business of ceilings and floors, in the United States, we do have a floor. So you, you, if it falls below a certain point, they'll uh, essentially halt the trading for some time. But um, to the best of my understanding, it's not exactly symmetric on the upside. So it's not true that if it goes up by a certain, the same amount, they would shut down the trading on the up market. The upbreak, the, on the ceiling side, it's a little more liberal, or sometimes it's non-existent. So the United States doesn't treat downs and ups asymmetrically. Okay? Um, now, what you're saying is in India, they also have ceilings, but that's kind of a little bit hard, hard, to, quote, hard to say that it's uniform across countries. Many countries don't have ceilings. But here's the reason they don't. The reason is that there's that when people sell, it tends to be, you know, in waves of panic, right? So people often say that um, when markets are falling, people are stressed, and when people are stressed, they have too much cortisol in their system that makes them panic, and so a bunch of people just uh, sell in a herd-like fashion. So there's many more market crashes than there's like market melt-ups. And so then that's why you have to have circuit breakers to cut that panic out so that people can sort of cool down and, you know, come back with a level-headed mentality and trade things rationally, right? That's why you have circuit breakers to cut out the panic. Also, um, you know, fat finger syndrome, people make mistakes. And so some massively disruptive order, uh, you know, creates hassles on the floor of an exchange and makes people panic. You need to have a breaker to cut that out. So it makes sense to, you know, the notion, have the notion that people panic and so in sharply falling markets, we need to have a breaker to cool, cool down uh, people's heads. That's fine. The problem is that regulators in America don't think that this business of going up is a big problem, right? And they don't think that way because it hardly ever happens. Nobody really uh, faces market disruptions because of stock prices going up. So this is one of the few instances where the going up part has caused a massive disruption. And there was no breaker actually, because, because it was going up and nobody, there was no regulator that actually planned for it. And maybe they should have, but they didn't. So here's the thing. So um, in a thinly traded stock like GameStop, if people keep buying and not selling, there's a shortage of shares. So the price sharply rises. There's such a demand supply imbalance, right? 
Um, and so what happens is that the, the stock keeps rising as more and more people choke up the supply by not selling. And that's what happened in this case. The problem in this case was that it was exacerbated by the fact that the short interest was too high. And so these, uh, these hedge fund managers didn't want to sell out uh, because they would have had to liquidate at a massive loss that they thought was nothing to do with fundamentals. And so basically the supply got choked. So I think the bigger problem here was that the regulators never anticipated this could happen. Uh, and I think they should have anticipated, and maybe in India there's more anticipation that this could be a problem on the upside as well. Uh, but it was not the case in the US. So I think the lesson to be learned here is that we need to have ceilings as well. I think that's a fair thing to say. That's much better to have a ceiling and publicize it than for Robinhood to come in and uh, simply say that you can't sell, you can't buy. That's unfair because that's not that those aren't the rules of the game. A ceiling, public publicized ceiling, would be much better. So the India is doing it in a better way, I would say. Okay, so I think there's a le lesson to be learned from the East, that means. Um, and a very good segue to my next question. See, option trading was done originally by seasoned and institutional players. And now it has reached in the hands of layman like me through Robinhood. And as technology democrat democratizes the activity in stock markets, not only experts, but the general public participates with informed opinion, or so they say. How will it impact the future course of these markets? Yeah, uh, so, um, so he, it's, it's, there's a different ways to think about it. The first way to think about it is that someone from a full-time MBA program like Anderson would obviously understand what they're doing in options markets. I mean, you understand payoff diagrams, the max uh, S minus K zero, whatever, call option payoff and so on. So you've learned about these things and you kind of understand them. So it's, it's good to um, have more traders um, access these markets because it adds liquidity in the market and more volume and uh, we're all better off in a liquid market. But here's the thing, options markets are also dangerous for naive investors who don't quite understand what they are. Um, it, it's possible you could view it like a lottery ticket, right? Because if the stock, uh, you know, essentially, you know, for example, if the exercise price of the option um, is very close to the stock price, um, it's possible that um, with, with some chance the option will expire completely worthless, you lose everything, and with some chance you'll make some money on the option. So from your perspective, it could be viewed as a lottery ticket that pays off as soon as the stock price rises above the exercise price. So let's say you're far away from maturity and the stock price is below the exercise price, well below the exercise price, the call option will be worth very little money. So maybe a cent or five cents. So you say, oh, that's like a lottery ticket because I just pay five cents for the option. Um, and then when at the time of expiration, I could win big, you know, it could pay off in a big way. So it's like a leverage security, which you could view as a lottery ticket. These types of lottery ticket exercises on options are very dangerous because uh, they just have leverage position, right? So with very high chance, you're going to lose it. So I think that it's a very important, uh, in my view, in terms of um, the FinTech people and so on and so forth, that. If you're going to allow options, you need to make sure that investors actually take an education course on the options and sign on the dotted line that they can the education course. Because if they, and you have to have some way of monitoring that they actually did it. Because otherwise, I think you'll have a lot of naive investors losing money in markets, which is not useful. On the flip side of it, the more the number of traders in the markets, the more liquid the markets become. So I think that that makes everyone better off. So it's a tricky balance between education and um, liquidity. And I think that the uh, marketplace has to strike that balance. From the perspective of institutions who trade the options, this can be only good news because the more the naive investors that trade these options, the more the profit potential to the institutions, but that's neither here nor there. But 
clearly there's also benefit for them because it's a zero sum game. So those are my views. That's amazing because that was actually on top of my mind. Like what kind of measures you can take to protect the stock markets from any kind of uneven activities from amateur traders. And what do you think after this whole incident? Uh, what is the future of Robinhood, and what can it do uh, apart from it? Of course, you know, putting a maybe some kind of a barrier to the naive uh, investors in the form of certifications. What can it do to actually not let this kind of decision making happen in the future? I think yeah. So that's an excellent point. So, see, the problem right now is that people don't have much confidence in Robinhood, and so uh, I think that the the issue has to do with um, the lack of good faith that's perceived by these naive investors. So as you, as you might know, the Robinhood's um, business model is not to charge a commission. So you, as you know, you have an account, trading is free, but they have to make their money. So how do they make the money? They make their money by selling the order flow to um, uh, market making firms like Citadel. And what these firms do is that they front run the orders. So essentially what they do is that they take your order and inventory and they can front run you. So they see that a lot of Robinhood people are buying, then they can buy in advance and liquidate when the Robinhood order comes in. That, that, that's called payment for order flow and front run, which is legal in the US, of course. But the problem in this case is that you as a Robinhood uh, investor get worse execution prices than the people who actually buy the order flow from Robinhood. So that's how they make their money by, making, uh, by giving you worse execution on the pennies and uh, paying uh, that amount to Robinhood. That's essentially what happens. Now, this execution quality issue is not really relevant for most people because the holding periods are relatively long. You're not going to go be a day trader in Robinhood, so it doesn't matter much. But even if you lose one penny on the execution every time, if they handle millions and millions of orders, then they can make a lot of money on the penny, right? So that's how the business model works. The problem in this case was that Citadel had a lot of connections to hedge funds, including Melbourne Capital, who actually um, had um, short positions in Robinhood. Uh, sorry, I apologize. Uh, we can edit that. It had short positions in GameStop. So the perception is that uh, Robinhood imposed uh, these uh, caps on buying because they didn't want the Melvin Capital to lose too much money. Uh, and so the, the perception hasn't gone away. Now, Robinhood blames it on things like clearing houses, but it's very difficult for Robinhood investors to understand if I'm buying a stock with cash and I have the necessary cash balance in my account, why the heck is Robinhood blocking There's no reason for them to block me. I'm paying for the transaction with cash. I'm not buying, taking a loan. I'm not doing margin buying. I'm just buying it with cash. Robinhood to this day haven't haven't given a clear explanation for why they did that. So to my mind, the way to Robinhood to get into the good books of investors is to simply issue a declaration saying that as long as you buy with cash and you have the money in your account, we're not going to restrict you. No more. We made a mistake. We'll never do it again. So just stay with us and trust us. Robinhood hasn't done that. And my, if you don't do that, they're going to lose uh, uh, they're going to lose business to competing because this is a big deal. Uh, the confidence is a big deal. Now, I think that one mentality would be to say that these naive investors need to be brought in line. But remember, Robinhood prospers when it has a big client base, right? And uh, building confidence is more important than curtailing the naive investors, for Robinhood at least, in line. Yeah, and I think it actually killed chances for a lot many other fintech apps that would have come up in the future because it's not just the loss of confidence in Robinhood, but uh, like its uh, competitors as well. Uh, so definitely there's a lesson to be learned. And 
thank you so much for that insight i really didn't know how my money was being handled or how my you know positions were being handled by robin hood okay so i have one piece of quick advice for you when you record a trade immediately go to cnbc and see what the quote was for that same trade and see how much it's different at the same instant or have both screens open so when your order gets executed check the price and see if you're getting the best price and that will give you an idea of how much adverse the price is moving against you in terms of the execution Thanks for the tip, Professor. Definitely going to try that the next time. What do you think is the role of SEC in this whole situation? Are they going to come in any form? You know, bringing some kind of regulations? What do you see? What do you anticipate? Yeah, um, my view is that the SEC has a challenge in this case. So, the following schemes are uh, somewhat illegal. Overt pump and dump schemes are illegal. So, if the whole idea is that uh, you buy a stock you spread a false rumor about the stock the price goes up and you sell out that's illegal you can't do that okay um manipulation in other ways is also illegal so you can't artificially manipulate the price of a stock but that holds for individual players acting in their own capacity but if a bunch of people at a message board simply coordinate to buy a stock and then refuse to sell it it is it's going to be very hard to prove manipulation say like what are you going to say like uh, really I'm, i'm manipulating a stock i have um, about 1000 bucks in my robinhood account and you're saying i'm manipulating a stock like robinhood you know i'm not big enough to do that and the sec won't be able to do anything so my view in that in this particular instance is that the sec has a challenge and i would say that the there's a stronger case to make sure that brokers like robinhood don't get out of line and let people trade freely as opposed to regulating the naive people the regulating the naive people um in train has left the station there's too many robin hood investors around you can't regulate them anymore they're too used to having things their own way and trading the way they want so i think the sec's role here is really to rein in the brokers to make sure that they don't curtail trading and they stick to their advertised business model which is to um democratize the stock market they want to make that the message and make sure it is democratized and stays that So I would say the SEC has a bigger role to play in regulating the brokerages to make sure they remain free and fair, as opposed to curtailing the naive investors. I don't think that's going to work. It's too democratized as as it stands. You know? So it's going to be hard to do that. My point is, it's democratized in spirit, but <laughs> in terms of how they actually do it, there's some issues. So I think that that's where the SEC has a role. Yeah, and I think Robinhood has been here for quite some time now. So. have you noticed any significant shift in the trading patterns in general because of these naive investors coming into the forum first of all in academics don't like to take positions based on small samples so we would argue robinhood hasn't been there long enough to really make a big judgment call on how it's affected markets but certainly anecdotally if a, if a reasonable uh, finance person looks at the evidence it suggests to us that um, there may be a problem in terms of how stocks move and the excessive volatility that we've seen in uh, in 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 GameStop, American Airlines, AMC and now in these pharmaceutical companies that seem to be targeting um and so on and so forth uh, presents in my view a um somewhat of a disconcerting uh, sort of a situation where uh, you sort of say like this this much volatility can't possibly be reasonable um so we sort of get a feel for the notion that this is uninformed uh, a movement of prices away from fundamentals it has no bearing or no linkage to fundamentals 
So I think that that is an issue that these traders are creating too much volatility, especially in stocks with cult following, with thin trading, where they can have more of an impact. As to what to do about it, that's a different story. I'm not yet sure you actually can do anything about it. Like, what are you going to do? The only thing that makes sense to me is to step in in extreme and egregious cases, like the India case we talked about where you put seals. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but beyond that, I don't really think you can regulate the Robinhood investors that on oh, things like, oh, you can't buy if the price goes up by 30%. That doesn't seem fair or reasonable, right? Because like, that's the objective of Robinhood. Now, the, the thing with ceilings and the floors is that it applies equally to everyone. But what doesn't make sense is to say that Robin Hoods and Schwab's in each case can't do it. But oh, if you're Melbourne Capital, you can do whatever you want. That that doesn't look right at all. And that's what the problem is right now. Right. So the, anything you do has to be uh, completely equitable across the board. Yes, knowledge equity, uh, action equity across the board, I think is the message from here. Um, Professor, one of my colleagues, I had this question for you. Do you read Wall Street bets? Uh, once in a while, very occasionally. Yeah. I wouldn't ever trade and, on it. That's a different story. But yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you think is going to happen to these communities? Um, I think that they would find it uh, difficult to coordinate in the same way um, in the future. Um, part of the reason would be that um, the institutions uh, are going to be more into it, right? Like, so many more people will be reading them now than they were before. So if I'm a Steve Cohen of 0.72 who didn't really care about it, now I would say, well, wait a minute, I need to look at what these people are doing. You know, I don't, so if I want to short something, I would say like, what do these people think? And if these people are bullish about it, I'd say like in the short run, I could get another GameStop situation and get margin calls, I better be careful. So I would say that the extreme situation like GameStop would have difficulty arising again because many more people would be doing, uh, reading WSB. So I think that the thing that's going to happen is there's going to be more um, attention paid to WSB, Wall Street bets. And that would be good news for Reddit, which means it's going to attract more traffic. But that same attention paid to Wall Street bets would also mean that they would be not as effective because people would take them more seriously and the action of taking them more seriously would make sure that they don't take massive positions in companies that could be adversely affected by a bunch of Wall Street betters coordinating and moving prices against them. So that would be my prediction. So Professor, uh, we are nearing to the end of this podcast and uh, I want to ask you, do you think this whole situation makes a great case study for a behavioral finance course? You mean the entire thing? I know, absolutely. I think that any professor who teaches any class uh, similar to this, behavioral finance, would incorporate at least an hour of discussion on this matter, right? I think there's a lot of ramifications. There's society-related sh issues like sociology issues, psychology issues, equity, fairness issues, finance theory issues. So it raises so many questions and um, uh, that it's going to be a fascinating subject to discuss. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I think that... Um, there will be case studies written. I think that um, in my view, five years down the road, it would be like part of a standard finance curriculum, like any basic class or a second class in finance would have uh, this as a, as a case study, right? I'm sure. It's a seminal event, very important event in financial markets. Wow, all in all, a great session. And I think there's going to be a great scores coming up in the next semester. Can't wait. 
everything is so interesting. Never thought finance could be this interesting. And, you know, you know, I couldn't, you know, realize the time flew by. So thank you so much, Professor, for being with us. I'm sure uh, people will really appreciate the guidance and the insights that you gave to us about this whole situation. No problem. Okay. Thank you so much, Shruti. Good luck to all of you. Hope to see some of you at least in the spring. And there it is. Now, after listening to Professor Subra, I have to admit, I'm honestly rethinking how often I take advice of strangers off the internet. I don't know about this whole diamond hands things or meme stocks anymore. But all joking aside, I hope you enjoyed this perspective on recent events and learned something new. Thank you so much, Professor Subra, for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or if something resonated with you, tell us about it. Send us an email at theasweetpodcast at gmail.com or better yet, leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends all about The A-Suite. Big shout out to our amazing host, Shruti Pandey, our executive audio director, Alyssa, and our executive producer, Jody. I'm John Lee, and I just want to say thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you here next time on The A-Suite Podcast, signing off. Thank you.